Alrighty, so I'm going to read from 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. If you've got one of the church Bibles, it's on page 815. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God in Corinth, together with all the saints throughout Achia. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm, because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. We do not want you to be uniformed, brothers, uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts we felt the sentence of death, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us, as you help us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favour granted us in answer to the, many, to the prayers of many. Morning, everyone. In case you haven't met, my name's Ben. It's an uh, occasional pleasure and privilege I have to come over here and uh, bring the Word of God to bear uh, on us together. Uh, I lead our evening congregation, Night Church, which is uh, why you don't often see me uh, here. Uh, I have a microphone, that means I can do stuff, so this is very impromptu. I'm going to give you a second Bible reading, purely on the basis of hearing that wonderful uh, bit of interview between uh, Pete and John. Just a few chapters forward in 2 Corinthians, chapter 5, it says, For we know that if this earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because... We do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. I'm not at all surprised to hear Pete say that it's the work of God, even in the things like his ailing father, God has fashioned us for such a purpose. We are made to be with him in heaven, not to be clothed as we currently are. There's my sermonette. Now, for the sermon. 
Let me lead us in prayer as we begin this uh, new series in 2 Corinthians. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you speak to us in your word, the Bible. Please help us set aside any hindrances or distractions that we would both rejoice and tremble at your word and be transformed by it more into the likeness of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. I don't care if it hurts, I want to have control. I want a perfect body, I want a perfect soul. I want you to notice when I'm not around. You're so very special, I wish I was special. But I'm a creep. I'm a weirdo. What the hell am I doing here? I don't belong here. I don't belong here. So go the words, the rather immortalised words, I would say, to the song Creep by the band Radiohead. According to Wikipedia, as of April in 2019 in the UK, it was the most streamed song released for its year, namely 1992, with 10.1 million streams and much to the band's great displeasure, I'm told, it remains Radiohead's most successful single. Now, I'm certainly no fan of 90s grunge music. I probably couldn't tell you uh, the name of any other Radiohead song, but even I have to admit that I can see why that song shot straight to the top and earned that band millions of dollars. Basically, so many people can so easily relate to the sentiment it expresses. I don't fit in. I don't belong here. It is something so many people can so easily feel in many circles, many situations and circumstances. God made us relational beings, male and female, he created them. But we also inhabit a fallen world marked by death and decay. So in all sorts of circles, it's easy for us on account of our real or even our perceived insecurities to feel like, I don't belong here. I'm the weirdo. I don't fit in like everybody else. Now, to guard against the uncomfortableness of this fairly universal feeling, sometimes people will retreat into themselves and come what we, become what we might call very private people. Sometimes we invest our insecurity with great nobility and virtue. I'm not like those normal people on the in crowd. I'm one of the broken, therefore authentic people who really sees things as they truly are. Sometimes we have imposter syndrome, the idea that I'm not competent like everybody else around me, perhaps especially in the workforce, so I have to keep up appearances and hope that I don't get found out for what I'm really like. But such coping mechanisms only prove the point. A sense of belonging can be as elusive as it can be idolised. How do such ways of thinking and feeling, which are able to send a song like Creep to number one for years, how do such ways of thinking and feeling square with our experience of being members of God's holy temple, that is, his church, the body of Christ. We probably know that it ought to be the case that as members of God's church, we feel like we belong and we fit in. 
But we also know that that can sometimes feel more like the exception than the rule. Well, it's that thought that I want us to have in mind as we come to the first half of chapter 1 of Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth. I'm excited, it's a new sermon series, very obviously we're looking at 2 Corinthians uh, from, from this week onwards. And uh, Paul opens this letter with a greeting that on first glance looks pretty mundane and straightforward, but that on reflection is actually a fairly radical start to this letter. Uh, verse 1, Paul writes, first of all, to introduce himself. Paul, that's me, an apostle of Christ. Apostle means sent one, so he's like an ambassador for Jesus. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to, so now the recipients, the church of God in Corinth, together with all his holy people throughout Archaea, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that last sentence is a pretty standard kind of greeting from the Apostle Paul. Uh, God's church has been established on account of God's kindness, His grace in saving us. We don't do good things to be favoured by God. Uh, God in His kindness does everything in order to save us, it's, it's, it's grace. The Probably the single biggest misconception people have about Christianity is that you've got to be a good person to be saved. Uh, that's thoroughly ridiculous. No one's a good person, Jesus is the only one who's good and He did everything to save us. God is a God of grace. And our relationships with one another are therefore characterised by peace. The blood of Jesus puts us all on the same page, so regardless of our many differences, age, gender, whatever, we all have a common interest and a common identity, hence we have peace with God and peace with one another. Such grace and peace are ours because God has given us the immense gift of coming to know Him as Father, so grace and peace to you from God our Father, through, of course, knowing Jesus Christ as Lord. You can't know God as Father unless Jesus is your Lord, and if Jesus is your Lord, God is your Heavenly Father. So that's straightforward. But the radical thing is that Paul unashamedly refers to this group of people as the church of God. It's not just any collective, it is God's gathered people. And guys, I've got to tell you, that is almost scandalous. You see, if you were to look back at Paul's first letter to this church, 1 Corinthians, you'll find that there were, for a start, factions and divisions. I follow Paul, <laughs> I follow Apollos, <laughs> I follow Christ, you know, pity you fools. You learn that there were lawsuits among believers. I'm taking you to court to sue you and see you punished because of our dispute. There was rampant sexual immorality. A man is having sexual relations with his father's wife. And even worse, the church is proud. Isn't it good we've got that kind of thing going along? here at our church. Almost as bad, there was a tendency towards asceticism. I'm more holy than other people because I didn't get married or I don't have sex with my spouse. I'm abstaining from earthly pleasures because I'm so holy. And then when it came to spiritual things, 
Well, I'm more holy than you because when I pray, I do it in my native language, which only God and I can understand. So I'm like more holy than you because I can pray in a, a foreign tongue. And even worse than that, there were some people denying the resurrection and uh, to, to the final judgment and possibly even denying the resurrection altogether. That's literal heresy. That removes you from the kingdom of God. Paul said he could not address these Corinthians as truly spiritual, but as worldly. They had so many issues that he painstakingly had to sort through that it seems one letter wasn't enough. So now he has to write to them a second time. And yet, according to the inspired word of that apostle, this is the church of God. And they're just as on par with all God's other holy people in their region. And that means straight off the bat, this is already a challenge and a rebuke to me, as I trust it probably is to many of us. That difficult person, that annoying person, that broken person, that person with a silly issue, ought I not yet regard them as the church of God? Do I look at the fellowship God has placed me in and say, this church is God's church? Many years ago, I had a friend who was looking for a good Bible teaching church, and so I invited him along to mine, which at the time was St. Michael's Anglican Cathedral in Wollongong. Uh, the rector at that time was a, was a great guy, Sandy Grant was his name, he's actually now the, the Dean of St. Andrew's Cathedral uh, in the city. And I introduced my friend to Sandy, and uh, uh, Sandy told him what we believe and, and how church runs. My friend was overjoyed, because that was the exact thing that he was looking for, and Sandy, therefore, also made a point of saying to this guy, look, it's important I tell you that there is a good chance, sooner or later, that I will let you down. And to me, that was a terrific lesson from Sandy. It wasn't his church, never had been, never will be. It's God's church, and like any other imperfect member of God's church, of course, the leader might, sooner or later let you down, just like anyone else in the church will let anyone else down. Hopefully not intentionally, I'm going to assume not. But the head of the church is actually perfect, truly, and he will never let anyone down, of course, that is Jesus Christ. Now, how can such a messed up and dysfunctional group of people, this church in Corinth, be considered God's church? Well, Partly it's because God is the father of compassion and therefore he uses his people to give comfort or a slightly better translation in my opinion, consolation to one another. Now for verse 3, praise be to the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. Uh, to put this another way, the God to whom the church belongs is the God whose son, for example, would say, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest for your souls. He is the father of all 
compassion. And just as following Jesus means we've chosen to take up our cross and and therefore to suffer, so too in Jesus, our God has provided the means by which we can mutually comfort or console one another. Uh, The word translated here, comfort, is elsewhere translated encourage and also console. Uh, Given that the gospel is for sinners who then join in the sufferings of Christ and given that Christ himself is called the consolation of Israel in Luke's gospel, I think it makes sense that we think of one of the functions of the church as consoling one another amidst hardships. And it really is a function of the church of God. God, in his perfect wisdom, has decided that his comfort, his consoling of his troubled people, comes via the means of other troubled people. God uses mess to deal with mess. And that shouldn't surprise us in the slightest, because God used the messy murder of his perfect son to clean the mess of our sin. There is a deliberate emphasis on the mutual comforting of God's people. So, verse 6, if we're distressed, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it's for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. Uh, It's a bit of a brain bender, but let me try and set it straight. When I see someone persevering through hardship for the sake of the gospel, I am greatly comforted slash encouraged. My great comfort then inspires me to console you amidst your struggle, such that by the time there's wind in your sails from being consoled, you're then ready to comfort me as I now suffer hardships in living for Jesus. And on and on the circle constantly goes in one big, gloriously dysfunctional but God-honouring kind of cycle. And notice that this mutual consoling is to produce in us the ability for patient endurance. Patient endurance under hardship is something God uses to mould us more and more into the image of his beloved son, who was himself, of course, the man of sorrows. Patient endurance is something that our compassionate God actually considers precious. But which, I've got to say, our world, in many contexts now, seems to despise and reject. Uh, You see it, especially in the debates surrounding euthanasia, I am certainly an advocate for relieving of pain and suffering and from what little I know about the issue of palliative care, my guess is that there is significant room for improvement. But the idea that patient endurance as a legitimate approach to suffering is looked down upon by our hedonistic culture is something that grates against the Christian worldview. Remember it was Job's wife who said, just curse God and die. And thankfully, Job corrected her and said no. Remember, it was when the Roman centurion saw how Jesus had died that he exclaimed of him, truly this was the Son of God. 
Uh, it's actually a virtue, we forget this, one of the fruits of the Spirit is forbearance or patient endurance. The old word for it is uh, long-suffering. It's something actually precious in the sight of God, long-suffering. How are you going or how do you think you'll go? With patient endurance. How am I going and how will I go with patient endurance, with long-suffering? How can we be consoling one another to help one another patiently endure? That's the right question to ask on the basis of God's Word uh, in this part of Scripture. Now, like any good minister of Christ, Paul practices what he preaches. So, the next thing he does is he actually gives a working example of his suffering, which he then uses to comfort this church of God in Corinth and suggests a way by which they, in turn, can console him. So, verse 8, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we'd received the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead... He has delivered us from such a deadly peril and He will deliver us again. On Him we have set our hope that He will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favour granted us in answer to the prayers of many. Notice that the patient endurance was not on the cards for Paul and Timothy when they faced the pressures of mission work Uh, and and the persecution that it invites. He says they were far beyond their ability to endure. They were lacking in that fruit of the Spirit, the long-suffering. And it's not because they were under the sentence of death. Everyone in the world is under the sentence of death. Man is destined to die once and face judgment, Hebrews 9.27. It's because they felt they'd received the sentence of death. Like in Philippians where... Paul didn't know if he would live or die. The reality of death was brought closer. And of course, history tells us that Paul was eventually martyred. He was beheaded in Rome. But what gave him, what restored his ability for the patient endurance? What gave him that fruit of the Spirit again? Well, first and foremost, the fact that even when he felt the sentence of death, he knew the God who raises the dead a new and everlasting life, which that that surely had to be the number one comfort, right? It's one of the greatest things about being a follower of Jesus. He really is the Father of compassion, the God of all comfort, because even when the worst happens, God still ensures that the worst doesn't happen. And it's when the worst is close to happening that Paul was forced to rely on this God of all comfort, the God who promises us that, for example, Revelation 14... Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, there's a spirit. They will rest from their labour for their deeds will follow him. Again, Jesus says, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For the Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. He is the God who raises the dead. There's no question for those who have faith in Jesus, you look forward to a real, eternal, heavenly, bodily resurrection. 
But how is such comfort and consolation experienced by Paul and his workers? Well, look back at verse 10, I'll put it up on the screen. On him, that's on God, we've set our hope that he will continue to deliver us, which of course he will, he's the God of comfort, he's the God who raises the dead. But verse 11, that will happen as you help us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favour granted us in answer to the prayers of many. In the same breath that Paul talks about the consoling work of God with God's resurrection power, he will also talk about the prayers of those with whom he's in Christian fellowship. They, in their dysfunctional mess, are the ones who yet channel the comfort of God to help him in his dysfunctional mess. If you struggle with feeling like you don't fit in, one of the Bible's great antidotes is that you start praying for the other people in your fellowship to endure hardships and to persevere in following Jesus. And also asking unashamedly that they do the same for you. Given that most people at one time or another and to some degree feel they don't belong or fit in, there'll always be a lot of giving and receiving of prayer amongst the church of God. It's one of the means by which God channels that comfort and consolation. In fact, I am thoroughly confident to say that God's church is actually made up entirely of broken people who endure suffering and who therefore ought to enjoy consolation together. That is the view of church that as you go across 1 and 2 Corinthians that you see that Paul and therefore God espouses. It's not going to be long into this letter when Paul will speak of all Christians as being jars of clay, crackable. I don't know if crackable is a word but it ought to be, you're crackable. Nor will it be long before he speaks of the way our weakness shows forth Christ's strength. Later still, Paul will talk about a thorn in the flesh, given in order to teach him that God's grace is sufficient. He'll talk about his daily anxiety for all the churches of God amidst trials and persecutions. Paul will chastise strongly these Corinthians for chasing worldly power and status and he'll instruct them how to forgive people in order that they might avoid excessive or overwhelming sorrow. But for the time being, surely that old adage that a burden shared is a burden halved is an obvious and immediate implication. Paul didn't want the messy Corinthian church to be uninformed of how he and Timothy had suffered just as he was eager to know the things that were going on for them, we find out later he sends people to work out how things are going for Corinthians. If that's what the missionary founder of the church does, well, how much more ought it to be common practice to let one another know of personal trials, which we saw a perfect example of this morning here with, uh, with uh, uh, John and Pete. Um, 
One thing that comes to mind for me that's reasonably obvious, it's by no means exclusive area in which burdens ought to be shared, is when it comes to marriage. There's this thing we have called marriage, it's a beautiful thing, it's a reflection of the relationship between Jesus and the church, but it's still taking two sinful people and putting them together, so there's going to be problems. And you might find that if you've got a trusted, trustworthy Christian brother or sister who you can share about issues that you want to resolve within your marriage, that they'll probably open up and tell you all the dysfunctions they have in theirs as well. Now, that's just one tiny little area. It just comes to mind as, as by way of example. But there's a good example of a burden shared being a burden halved. Now, of course, it might be the case that for someone here, I don't know all of you, that you don't just need to share a burden with a trusted Christian brother or sister, but that you need your original burden of sin to be removed completely. You might just not need a burden shared, you might need a burden taken away, the burden of sin and guilt before God. Jesus and Jesus alone can do that and he invites you, as a matter of fact, he commands you, Acts chapter 17, to come to him in repentance and faith and enjoy the immense comfort of knowing that when you do, he takes away the penalty for all sin, past, present, future, and he makes you a child of God such that you can then endure suffering and enjoy consolation in God's church. Lastly, when Paul wrote that famous command in Philippians to rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice, put up your hand if you have a song in your head when you hear that, rejoice in the Lord always, good, good. When Paul wrote that command, it wasn't an individual that he was speaking to, but of course the whole church. A few sentences before those words, he, the, he said, I'm speaking to you in the plural. It's use ought to rejoice in the Lord always, to use Bogan English, right? Now, that implies that in Christ, I have something of an obligation to want to see you rejoicing in the Lord. And likewise, you have something of an obligation to want to see me rejoicing in the Lord. Now, don't think for a second that rejoicing in the Lord means the same thing as being happy. I cannot guarantee that I can make you happy any more than you can guarantee that you can make me happy. But I can let you know of my struggles, just as you can let me know of yours. My prayers, perhaps my weak, even my weak and pathetic prayers for you can truly be the means by which our compassionate Father provides consolation. Just as your weak, even your weak and pathetic prayers for me can be the means by which I'm consoled. The jar of clay has the treasure, to use language that we're going to see later on in 2 Corinthians. It's on account of our ongoing active fellowship together that we can rejoice. We can count it all joy when we suffer various trials and hardships. And one of the things that produces rejoicing in me especially is to work out that as you read the New Testament, especially 1 and 2 Corinthians, really everyone in the church of God is a misfit anyway. I can guarantee you all perfectly fit in here in the church of God because nobody does. What a wonderful, glorious truth in the Word of God who comforts us amidst our trials and hardships. Let me conclude in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your Son, our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who though in very nature God, 
came into this world and suffered, even suffered to the point of death on a cross, so that rebellious sinners like us can be saved and adopted into your perfect family. Father, we thank you that in our jar of clayness, in our weakness, in our folly, in our foibles, in our insecurities, that even then you use us to channel your comfort to one another. And so, Father, I pray for all of us that we would embrace our fellowship together, that we will be unashamed of bearing the burdens of one another and opening up with those who are trusted Christian friends about the burdens so that together we can enjoy the consolation of Christ uh, in our rich fellowship with one another. Pray for anyone here who as yet is not a child of God, for they don't yet know Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour, that in your great mercy and kindness uh, you'd bring them to repentance and faith in Christ, that they would turn and put their trust in Him and so be saved and join your dysfunctional family through which your comfort abounds. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.